Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. In just a moment, our own Dave James will be speaking with Ann Zimmerman, co-chair of Small Business for America's Future and founder and owner of Zimmerman and Company CPAs in Cleveland and Cincinnati. They will discuss the bevy of issues small businesses are facing in the wake of the coronavirus. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light will have a digital roundtable discussion about how social activism is affecting policy in Columbus and elsewhere around the state, about tuition hikes and job cuts at Ohio's colleges and universities. And Governor Mike DeWine weighs in on whether or not Ohio is a battleground state, even as national polling puts President Donald Trump at a distinct disadvantage in the upcoming election. And I'll wrap up the hour speaking with Dr. Carlos Del Rio of the Infectious Diseases Society of America about the facts and fiction surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic that's coming up this hour on Columbus Perspective. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Ann Zimmerman. She is the co-chair of the Small Business for America's Future and also is the founder and owner of Zimmerman & Company CPAs in Cleveland and Cincinnati. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about small businesses and the predicament they're in, uh, and you have recently surveyed many of them to find out what they think and, and what they're going through. We have. That's important to us because our job, as we see it, is to advocate for these small businesses and give them a voice at the table. Uh, we, we surveyed over 1,200 small businesses, and we found that they're in trouble and that they're not happy with uh, how our nation's leaders are helping them through this or not. Give us some uh, some of the results that you've found. Yeah, I will. You know, in I can I can even speak a little bit to Ohio. In Ohio, um, the number of businesses that are open, small businesses, today compared to January is down 16 percent, with revenues down about 19 percent. That's that's huge. When we came out of the recession in 2008, it was small businesses that led the way. We created two-thirds of all the new jobs coming out of that recession. And we need that same kind of leadership from small business to be able to get out of this mess, too. But what we found was that an overwhelming eight in ten small business owners say that our nation's leaders don't understand their needs and that they favor big business anyway. Um, the majority, about 54%, disapproved of the Trump administration's handling of the COVID crisis, according to um, our new coalition survey. So um, I think what we're finding is that um, they're in trouble. One in four one in four has considered closing permanently, and about 13% have already looked at bankruptcy. And with those numbers, the economy in general is going to be in big trouble if we don't pay attention and keep these small businesses alive. I'm, I'm talking Main Street Barbershop and the nursery down the street and, and those sorts of things. I'm not talking Ruth Chris, who got a PPP loan. You know, the, the small businesses have, have had to take on debt. We found that more than half of them have taken on new debt because of the COVID crisis. 
and that in itself will restrict them so badly having to come out of the crisis and you know they're obviously they're they're responsible citizens because small businesses are by definition a member of their community and their community matters to them um so we also found that you know I know that 70% in that range are are requiring employees to wear masks and asking customers to and extra cleaning and all those sorts of things, trying to take care of their community. I think small business owners are in this situation because they did their part to stop spreading the virus. They closed down, they added these new precautions, and now it's time for policymakers to do their part to make sure small businesses survive. And that was one thing I wanted to ask you. It, it did seem like back in March when, when a lot of businesses closed, it did seem like there was a lot of support from business owners and restaurants and such behind that. Now that the the virus seems to be ramping up again in places like Texas and Oklahoma and and a, and a bunch of other states. If it comes down to closing again, do you expect more pushback next time around? I definitely do. You know, I I think we people are weary. <laughs> um, I think uh, businesses may not be able to survive another shutdown. And, and I think our administration needs to be spending a little less time on just big businesses and put some focus on maybe some grants for truly small businesses to help them through this and help them to ramp back up in a safe manner. Some of the criticism that we heard, and this was in Ohio as well, some businesses were upset, you know, like hardware stores, for example, where Walmart and Target stayed open that sell many of the same types of items that, that, a, that a hardware store or a lot of other type of mom and pop shops might sell, and they were not able to be open. Yeah, honestly, I haven't uh, heard a lot Talking with Ann Zimmerman, she's a CPA and co-chair of Small Businesses for America's Future. What is your sense in terms of the economy? You know, we've got inflation is higher than it's been in quite a while, uh, but interest rates are practically zero. 
what is the the environment like for a recovery and and where do you expect things to be three to six months from now whether the pandemic continues or not um i think the environment for small businesses is tenuous at best um many of them especially in the hospitality industry um a lot of the personal service industries um certainly Businesses owned by people of color, Latinos are being hit much, very disproportionately from uh, the overall businesses that are are being hit. And I, I think there still needs support to come through this. I don't think many of them are there yet. And um, I know Congress talks about it and Trying to keep up with the discussion is difficult, isn't it? But I don't see anything actually happening right now that's going to help just this little guy. Some of the things, uh, like in the restaurant industry, we were talking with the Ohio Restaurant Association that said that some of these loans to keep employees hired um, had to be used initially. The the government had set a timeline of, I think it was eight weeks or something like that, and they got it moved up to 24 weeks because some businesses didn't even think they'd be able to open within eight weeks, let alone retain employees. Uh, It it seems like there's a lot of complexities in some of these loans and grants that the government is offering. There certainly are. And the whole point when the CARES Act was first passed that got this started was to make it simple for small businesses and, and allow them to quickly get some funds to keep their staff. Then, I think as things evolve, it, Congress came to realize that, okay, they might need to use it for other things. I mean, a, a small business that's a hobby shop has to take care of the inventory bills that they're sitting on. They're, they're no longer bringing money in like they were, but they still owe their vendors. Um, the whole supply chain being interrupted. Um, so, yes, they have changed it to 24 weeks, but for some, that's not even enough um, because they haven't even been able to open yet or they're just now opening, and they may have gotten their their uh, payroll protection loans way back when. The other problem, so they, so they lost so much of that period to spend it. The other problem is the uh, application for forgiveness that came out, that the SBA put out. It seems the laws seem to work, and then the administration seems to come out with things that are contradictory to it. I know the forgiveness application is 11 pages long, and it is complicated. You have to figure full-time equivalents and, and wages at multiple periods points in time to fill it out. And and we think that there should be a, a limit below which you can get your loan forgiven just almost automatically. Um, if you're a larger company, sure, you've got an accounting office, but maybe 350000 or or I've heard some talk about 150, anything below that, just forget those loans. Don't even put them through this. And, and the other issue is the, the uh, IRS came out and made these things taxable, even though the CARES Act said they're not. 
um, they issued a notice, 2020-32, that said, okay, now the bills that you pay with these funds are not deductible. Well, that is identical to saying that the funds coming in are taxable. And the CARES Act says it's not taxable to small businesses. So that has stripped away additional funds from the small business because now they're going to end up with the tax bill. And, and they didn't think they needed to save some of this for tax, and now they do. You know, you think about how the landscape could change. Uh, I mentioned the Restaurant Association, and uh, the president and CEO of that organization here in Ohio said they're looking at a possibility of 3% of restaurants filing for bankruptcy and, and going out of business. But with well over 20,000, 23,000 of them in Ohio, you're talking about 700 of them. So even when the when the percentage seems small, you're still talking about a huge number. And I, I'm surprised that's so low. I'm sure they know what they're talking about. That's their association. But, you know, we found just the businesses in general, when you talk small businesses, so you know, he's the the head of the restaurant association is probably looking at large ones, a lot of large ones too. But if you narrow that down to small businesses, we found 13% of our small businesses were thinking they might have to consider bankruptcy. Wow, that's huge. There are there are 30 million small businesses in this country. Six million of them high employ. 60 million people, and the other 24 million are self-employed, right? So 80% of small businesses have fewer than 10 employees. So when you look at that, you can carve out a large piece of the small businesses in this country and identify them and define them so that you could give them some help. And if we lose 13% of those 30 million businesses, we're not going to have the recovery that we think we're going to have. Wow. We need. Just a moment or so to go here with Ann Zimmerman, a CPA in Cleveland and Cincinnati and co-chair of Small Business for America's Future. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I know that the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research has done a lot of uh, statistics and all, and they show that 3.3 million small businesses have already closed for good. 3.3 million. With black and minority-owned businesses bearing the brunt of that, um, we're here to listen and speak for small businesses. So if anybody wants to reach out to us, they can find us online at smallbusinessforamericasfuture.org. And we would love to hear your story. We would love to involve you in, in our mission to get a seat at the table, get a say in policies that are happening. Um, that's our goal. Okay, Ann Zimmerman again with uh, Small Business for America's Future. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. Imagine. Imagine being denied an apartment because of your religion or your race or because you have children or a disability. It's so wrong. Yes, but who has the power to stop this? You do. Each of us has the power. The law is on your side. It's illegal for landlords to discriminate because of race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, or familial status. 
If you suspect that you have experienced housing discrimination, file a complaint with HUD immediately so we can investigate it. Fair housing is your right. Use it. To learn more, visit HUD.gov slash fair housing. That's HUD.gov slash fair housing. Or call 1-800-669-9777. 1-800-669-9777. A public service message from HUD in partnership with the National Fair Housing Alliance. Listen, my life changed because someone was there to get me to use drugs. No one can understand. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. I'm realizing that I... I need help. I'm listening. I need help. I'm realizing that I think that having someone who will listen is going to help make it better. Whether or not they've struggled with addiction themselves, people seem to understand. No one can get me to use drugs. My life changed because someone was there to listen. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. I get it. Your desk has been there for you. Holding up your computer, your unused stapler, and that plant you forgot to water. But maybe it's time to leave your desk and spend your lunch break volunteering with Meals on Wheels. Doing Meals on Wheels for me is the joy that I look for at the end of my week. I'll come to the door with one meal and I'll walk away with a full heart. Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Face the State. I'm Scott Light. This morning, we explore this new level of social activism in Columbus and across the country. And I also ask City Council President Shannon Harden about this. What does this activism look like once it gets to policy? Also, Ohio colleges and universities announced both tuition hikes and job cuts this week. So I talked to two people about higher ed and about K-12 education for your child. Governor DeWine weighs in on if he'll campaign for President Trump. And does he believe Ohio is still a battleground come November? And speaking of presidential politics, more grim polling came out this week for the president. So we assemble a roundtable of campaign experts via Zoom to put those numbers in perspective. Let's begin, though, right here in our capital city, where Christopher Columbus statues are coming down and demonstrators and protesters are demanding social justice. I asked City Council President Hardin to put these times in perspective and also what these new demands are thrusting upon city leaders. Scott, you know, I see this as a seminal moment in our uh, American history, uh, something that started uh, with George Floyd's uh, murder in uh, Minneapolis has made its way from uh, from coast to coast and certainly has uh, has 
is here in Columbus. And the truth is, George Floyd's murder just sparked in a, a conversation that really probably needed to, to have happened in every community and certainly here in our community as well. We have real challenges. We have uh, what we are up against and what the broader uh, issue is, is really 400 years of structural racism and how that has played its role in everything from economic disparities, but more importantly and more specifically and more poignantly uh, in community policing. And so we have a challenge in this moment, not dissimilar to the challenges of the late 60s uh, with the civil rights movement uh, and, and working to repeal and change uh, Jim Crow and all those things. We have a, a, an obligation to honor the dignity of the moment and really uh, move our nation forward and on our shoulders here in, in our community to move Columbus forward to make sure that uh, community policing uh, really is for everyone. Uh, and that we take the, the cause for reform seriously, and that we then, re, then we come up and uh, reimagine what public safety means to all of us in Columbus, and then get to work on that vision. Let's pick up right there. If we're reimagining what public safety and what community policing looks like in our great city, what does it look like? What has to change? Well, I think that we've done a good job of saying what we don't like. Of course, we, we, we want to root out racism in, in the police force. We want to make sure there is civilian oversight for policing. We want to make sure that um, uh, we recruit more people that come from and, and represent the neighborhoods that, uh, that they serve. Uh, but those are static things. Those are things that, that are, are here and now with the current police. When we talk about reimagining what policing looks like and, and what public safety, more importantly, looks like, it's examining, uh, interrogating the idea of what, what do we expect out of, of, of police? Are we asking too much? Are we asking them to solve the, uh, all the issues that, that our community has, be that uh, mental health issues, be that poverty, be that homelessness? I think the best thing that we can do, Scott, um, is take our lessons learned from this and our energies, our positive energies mm -hmm. learned from this back to our spheres of influence, take them back to our circles, and then begin to have serious conversation about our own personal impacts on other people. I really want to see us change the energy, too, from this anger situation to something that is much more inspired, mm -hmm. something that's much more about how do we treat each other kindly. Fundamentally, this whole police issue is about treating people with respect. It's if you distill it all, it's all about how do you treat people with respect and kindness. That's it. So if we can do that, if we can actually figure out how to make that happen and integrate that in everything that we do, I think that um, we'll, we'll continue to make our situations, our systems better. Speaking of going forward, what does education look like in the fall? Ohio University announced another round of job cuts this past week, and the University of Cincinnati raised tuition for incoming freshmen. A lot of the universities have not dealt with what you might call the real world, and that's the fact that the money isn't necessarily all going to the professors. There's been a huge increase in administrative staffs, and some universities have focused a lot of money on climbing walls and uh, lazy river courses and other kind of things in order to attract and recruit students. 
but guess who has to pay for it ultimately? But a lot of those capital and overhead costs have gone up. And that's one of the reasons historically, I think over the last three or four decades, higher ed has gone up two to three times the rate of inflation. So I talked to Terry Casey there and Columbus City School Board member Michael Cole about changes coming to K through 12, too. We're thinking about the new normal in public schools across the board, but most specifically for us at Columbus City Schools, being a blended environment, quite possibly. One where we're adhering to uh, uh, social distancing parameters and other CDC compliance measures. And another where we're providing much more online virtual learning opportunities. Um, so we've expanded the Chromebook universe for our students significantly. Um, we've increased uh, hot spots for students. We've invested significantly in that. Many educators also say this. COVID-19 has exposed even deeper disparities in our education system. For example, if there is more distance learning, parents in some school districts just don't have that luxury of staying home at, from work to help out their child. Michael Cole says education for all moving forward should keep one word in mind. And that is equity. Equity. Now, this is something that Columbus City Schools has been focused on um, most of my tenure on the school board. Um, I definitely say the past three years, we've had a, a pretty hyper focus on creating conditions of equity for underserved, marginalized, et cetera, et cetera, students. Um, I think that on the tough side, the bad side, COVID exacerbated that mm -hmm. and heightened the urgency for our ability to address those issues and in certain ways made them a little more broad. Now, on the good side, you know, I believe chances make champions. On the good side, um, in that heightening of urgency, it has created an environment where we have begun to think much more creatively and flexibly. I think it's going to make Columbus City Schools as a district, as an institution, a much more flexible entity, one that is now very seriously looking at equity and how do we provide resources to see every child successful the way that they need to grow uh, and run their, their academic marathon. Some districts are fairly fortunate, like the Columbus Schools has a budget of over a billion dollars a year for 50,000 students. And right now, the Columbus Schools have got over 300 million cash on hand. So I don't know whether they're going to have a school levy this fall, but also like the Columbus schools, fortunately, are going to get $26 million out of the CARE Act of federal money. So that will help them pay for some things like sanitizers and masks. But definitely, and I used to be on the library board here in Columbus for 14 years, clearly we've got some great assets with the libraries. And the question is whether it's libraries, it's businesses, how do you make the internet more accessible for students because clearly with distance learning or research or a lot of other things, the internet's a key part of the equation and there's parts of urban areas, but also especially in rural areas where you don't have as advanced a speed and services 
where that's got to be addressed. And that's hard to do because, again, in some rural areas that maybe only have 14,000 people in the whole county and one school district like Fitton County, how do you make that all work? How do you make it all accessible? So there's challenges for a variety of districts. And again, 600 plus districts in the state of Ohio, you just can't crank out one page that says, here's the formula. Each district's got to adapt to their circumstance, the kids, the parents, the resources they have. Still ahead this morning, new polling data out this past week shows Joe Biden with a double-digit lead over President Trump. But at least one of my next guests says, hey, forget about those national polls, that it's all about voters in just a few states that'll decide the presidency. Long ago, you wouldn't think of galloping on a horse while doing calligraphy. And you wouldn't have attempted to ride your bike while typing a letter. Yet you think you can safely operate a multi-ton vehicle while texting? Behind the wheel is no place to multitask. If you want to BRB, drive now and text later. Lives depend on it. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. Someone you know may be suffering from severe emotional pain. Important signs to recognize include changes in behavior, hopelessness, acting withdrawn, agitation, poor self-care. Starting a conversation could save a life. Hi, I'm Dr. Brad Wenstrup, Congressman from Ohio. Look for these critical signs in those around you. Then take a moment to show you care. Start a conversation. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Welcome back. From the New York Times to the Washington Post to Quinnipiac University, lots of new polling emerged this past week to give Joe Biden his largest lead yet over President Trump nationally. It's double digits. The latest Quinnipiac poll puts Trump and Biden in a dead heat right here in Ohio, too. But hold on. Four plus months before any presidential election, that's an eternity. And the only number that really matters is 270 to win the Electoral College. Governor DeWine said this week that Ohio is a battleground again, and he said he would campaign for the president. So I talked to several political experts to put these polls and the presidential race in perspective. I think what we're going to see a change in, especially with polling numbers and a lot of the momentum, and, and particularly with the talk of what who where Ohio is on everyone's electoral map, particularly Donald Trump's. He can't lose Ohio. And I think that's going to be a total shift in, while it's always been on the electoral map, I think it's going to be back to more what we've seen from Ohio in the past. It is interesting to see that we are back uh, to a battleground. I, I remember having these conversations, you know, 18 months ago, where we were having conversations whether Democrats should even spend money or time in Ohio. And now you see polling where um, Joe Biden is is either up or uh, neck and neck. So it's a complete, complete shift um, from where we are. And I think that that goes to um, 
a bigger picture across many of these battleground states, whether you're talking Arizona, Texas, Iowa, Florida, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, it, it, you know, all these states are, are totally in play. Um, it's just, it's just a different dynamic. And, and keep in mind, we still have five more months to go. Mm -hmm. Um, this is a long way from over. The last month for Donald Trump has been a bit of a disaster. 120,000 Americans have died, uh, 20 million unemployed. The inability to manage the civil unrest or bring together people for race relations. And I think that is all culminating now in what you're seeing in the polls and why he's done so poorly here in the last uh, several weeks and month. But, you know, it's Ohio. It's a swing state. It's always going to be competitive. I also always immediately go to the... Um right track, wrong track. Um, that's where you start to kind of get, it's less about the personalities. It's more about the mood of the electorate. Um, and then you can take that, look at the right track, wrong track, and then start looking at issues and you can compare the two and you can get a pretty good sense of where people are. Generally, uh, if your advisors are any good, they'll tell you as a candidate to throw the polls in the trash. But, uh, <laughs> but if you have to look at them, uh, looking at that favorable, unfavorable, I think part of the challenge that uh, the incumbent has. Anytime you're an incumbent um, and you're under, as, as Brett sort of alluded to, you're under 40 plus percent or 45 percent in most cases, uh, you start to become concerned. And I think uh, that's one of the issues I think that the Trump campaign has to be worried about. And that's why you see their ad spending in Ohio in particular coming on. And you see the vice president here um, because they're under you know, hovering around the low 40s in Ohio and across the country and a lot of these Midwestern states. And, um, you know, it's hard to get reelected when your, uh, your numbers, like your uh, favorability numbers, are well below 45% or under 45 or 47%. And I think that's got to be a concern for the Trump campaign. When you look back at George H.W. Bush, who was obviously uh, 41, not 40, talking about H.W., he, um, he was around 37% at this time in his presidency, uh, favorable. Wow. So um, there's, a, there's some historical perspective here that people need to, that folks need to watch too. But again, I will remind everyone, we are still five months out. Um, neither one of these candidates are very exciting. You're talking about two 70-plus-year-old candidates um, with a long history. So um, drilling down into those numbers is going to be important, but these numbers are, for the most part, going to change uh, as we move forward. Let's bring another voice into this conversation on polling. Molly O'Shaughnessy is an expert on this subject. She is chief research officer at EMC Research back in November and say this was Trump's low point. Um, I, you know, he has uh, lost a significant amount of ground, particularly with white voters and white non-college educated voters around the country. We're looking at states like Iowa and Ohio that we thought were not in play this year at all. Um, North Carolina and Arizona, I mean, you know, that is that's definitely a different playbook than the presidential campaign was looking at six months ago, where we thought the whole race was going to be fought out in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. When you tell people what you do and where your expertise lies, you know, you're just talking to people, neighbors, whatever, and, you know, they mention polls. They're like, oh, you know, the polls are always off. And I, I tell people, listen, polls are a snapshot. They're not meant to be predictive. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Polls are a snapshot of a moment in time. And, um, you know, some polls are just meant to generate a headline um, to get to get clicks. And some polls are meant to guide 
campaign decision making. Um, and that that one, you know, horse race number is never the whole story in a poll. Uh, you know, the the professionals are looking at all of the numbers inside um, inside the poll to figure out what's going on. Uh, you know, usually when I tell people what I do for a living, they say, "Don't you do you call me at dinner time?" <laughs> and I say, "Yes, and we email you and we text you." So please right. answer. The national polls. Uh, are an indicator that gives us a look at trends and gives us a deeper look at some of the, the key groups of voters that we know the president has to win. Um, when you look at a national poll and you're worrying about white non-college educated voters, that is because we don't know enough uh, publicly about white non-college educated voters in North Carolina and Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania. Um, those, there's just not the dollar investment in state level public polling for us to have really good data on that. Um, and, and I think that's the value of national polls is they, there are enough of them that are quality that we can follow where the trends are. But it's absolutely right. You know, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the rules of this game. It is not a national contest. As I mentioned to Molly, you'll hear a lot of people say about 2016, well, the polling was off everywhere. It wasn't actually. The national polling was pretty solid. It was individual state polling that was off. Looking back, pollsters believe they didn't sample enough voters with a high school education only. And many of them, especially the white working class here in the Midwest, voted for Donald Trump. And that is a group that was a consistently undersampled in a lot of key uh, state level polls in 2016. Um, and then you had a presidential campaign that was not, uh, you know, aware of where they were losing ground and not investing in some of the campaigns late. So pollsters do a couple of things. We, we pay attention to who we're calling in the first place, and we track how many people we're getting against how many we expect to be in the electorate. And sometimes we adjust the samples on the back end, where we do actually weight the results more heavily among groups that we contacted in lower numbers than we wanted to. With declining contact rates and response rates over the phone over the years, we're now using a lot of different methodologies to reach people. So modes like uh, SMS text invitation to a poll um, are better at reaching uh, younger voters, for example, or, or more mobile voters who, who move around a lot and might be newer uh, to register. All, all of the methodologies are great for reaching older voters who like to talk on the phone. Um, so, so it depends a lot on where we're calling, what data we have available to us to contact people. And you might see that mix of phone versus text versus email at different um, from one poll to the next and one state to the next. Speaking of states, we have a constitutional crisis involving the president, Congress and the Supreme Court. Nope, not talking about modern times. This is a crisis involving Ohio and one of our neighbors back in the 1860s. It's been brought to light by that gentleman, a current federal judge who lives in Dublin. My exclusive interview with him coming up. Olivia from Washington. <clears throat> Laid off and trying to keep our little kids from realizing that mommy and daddy haven't eaten in a while. Roger from California. I'm grateful we could afford our son's surgery. I'm nervous that now we can't really afford food. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Donna from Louisiana. The storm just hit, and we went from donating to the food bank 
to needing it. Keisha from South Carolina. I've been skipping meals so my two kids can eat, but filling up on water doesn't really work. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Dedicated to the conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. And countless endangered species. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. Welcome back. People are debating, protesting. Some are defending the symbols of our past, from Christopher Columbus to Confederate monuments. Others say bring those monuments down. Well, a federal judge from the Southern District of Ohio, Ed Sargas, has just published this book, Seceding from Secession, about how our neighbors in West Virginia forged ahead to become a state during the Civil War. The people in West Virginia are very different than the people in Virginia. Uh, and when we say west, as you know from the book, west means west of the Allegheny Mountains. Mm -hmm. Those mountains really divided what used to be all of West Virginia into two very distinct parts. Uh, the tidewater part along the coast of the Atlantic, the Chesapeake, that's where all the plantations were. In West Virginia, you're talking more about mountains and hill country, different immigration trends. They were all connected more to places like Pittsburgh. Uh, in Cleveland than they were to places like Richmond. So when the war came, uh, the B&O Railroad was why the Union wanted West Virginia to be a state. But for people in West Virginia, that divide, and, and truthfully, the feeling that the planter class that owned all the slaves saw them as their sort of hillbilly cousins. They weren't happy with that, that view of themselves. And as a neighbor to now West Virginia, Ohio Plate had some roles in this. And, and you talked about some of the names, Representative Bingham and others. Ohioans weighed in on this, didn't they? So John Bingham, who would have been representing the eastern side of Ohio, was really the main person in the congressional debates to advocate for West Virginia. And the governor of Ohio, also uh, Governor Dennison, put troops in Bridgeport, Ohio, which is right across uh, the back channel of the Ohio River to Wheeling Island. So the minute anything uh, of a military th uh, nature happened, there were thousands of Ohio troops, and there's a, right across from the other side of West Virginia is Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania governor massed troops. So uh, the northern states really wanted West Virginia to be part of the, this fight. The, the problem is a literal reading of the Constitution. There's a, a paragraph, it's in Article 4, Section 3, that says Congress may create new states from existing states, but only if the existing state consents. So imagine Virginia on the other side of the Alleghenies is joining the Confederacy. They're not going to consent to part of their state being dismembered to join the Union. So then the constitutional question becomes, what happens to these people who don't want to rebel? And the framers were very wise, but they hadn't anticipated that question. So uh, in the end, what Lincoln decided was the people who 
formed a new government on the western side of the Alleghenies were still loyal to the Constitution. The other Virginia government sitting in Richmond was treasonous in his view and had also broken their oath to support the Constitution. So as he would say, our enemies will say that we're for secession when it's secession in our favor, but we would say they can't tell the difference between seceding against the Constitution and seceding to support the Constitution. And I think that's a pretty good way of saying it. I got to tell you, I could have talked to Judge Sargas for hours about this book, but I couldn't let him go without asking this. How does he view this piece of history now that our nation is looking back right now at those statues and monuments and relics of the 1800s? I think the aftermath of the Civil War has been unfortunate in so many ways. The Civil War kept the Union intact, freed the slaves. But as we live today, we can see, looking backwards, that freeing the slaves was very different than creating equality. But there was a narrative that developed, particularly in the South, after the Civil War, that the war was about something else. Uh, And the something else is what resulted in statues that are all over America, uh, in movies that make us think twice today. Uh, I, I do think there's no greater event in American history than the Civil War. It is still our most costly war in terms of human life, uh, and it still has a lot to say to us about where we are today. And that's where we will end it today. By the way, the book is on sale on Amazon. just came out, and you can get it right now. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you back here next week. Again, that's Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Are you dreaming of something greater? A college degree? Job skills? A rewarding career? As a member of the Ohio Army National Guard, those dreams can become a reality. The Ohio National Guard Scholarship Program could pay 100% of your college tuition. As a proud member of the Ohio Army National Guard, you're eligible for the scholarship program as soon as you enlist. And you'll become a part of an elite group of men and women who've sworn to serve and protect their community, state, and nation. Start fulfilling your dreams today with an education that will help you land the career you've always wanted. Learn more about earning your degree debt-free and the many benefits that come with serving in the Ohio Army National Guard. Visit NationalGuard.com today. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager. Learning the lingo. Jelly. Jelly adjective. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in... Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Did you know that prescription pain relievers have contributed to more overdose deaths than cocaine and heroin combined? Talk with your kids about the dangers of medicine abuse. Visit drugfree.org to learn more. A message from the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of threatening calls from telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. These calls are not from us. Hang up and report the call at oig.ssa.gov. 
There's just so much information out there right now about COVID-19, the coronavirus in Ohio and around the country and around the world, of course. Sometimes it's hard to know what to believe. So today on Columbus Perspective, I'm speaking with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Dr. Del Rio is with the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and he's the Executive Associate Dean for Emory University School of Medicine at Grady. A man who has qualified many times over to give us more information about this subject. Dr. Del Rio, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, delighted to talk to Dr. You. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. Dr. Del Rio, I hope you don't mind if we use our time today to give people kind of a back-to-basics course. There's so much information out there uh, to dispel some fact from fiction about the coronavirus. Uh, I wanted to go ahead and start with, let's talk about the name, uh, you know, why coronavirus, and is there just one coronavirus, or are there are different strains or different members of that family? Well, the coronavirus is a, it's a, it's a large family of viruses, and there are very different types of coronaviruses. And there are certain groups of coronaviruses that are, you know, of all the coronaviruses out there, there's a total of seven that impact, that infect humans. Uh, four of those are the causes of the common cold. You know, 10 to 30 percent of common colds are caused by coronaviruses. The other three coronaviruses are the more severe coronaviruses. One of them is called SARS, one of them is called MERS, and the new one, which is this one, COVID-19. So they're, those are the three sort of, you know, the bad actors. They're the, ones, the, the coronaviruses that, that can kill people. So if the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is in the same family as the common cold, what makes it so much more communicable and so much more deadly than other viruses? Well, it's, it's not necessarily more communicable. We know that the common cold is pretty communicable, but what it is, it, it causes, it's more deadly. It has the ability to, to infect not just the, the upper respiratory tract, but also the lungs and cause pneumonia. And by causing pneumonia, uh, cause uh, cause severe uh, pulmonary disease and and lead to, to difficulties breathing. You had mentioned that uh, this is one of the, uh, there are seven that can affect humans. Uh, my understanding is that COVID-19 is zoonotic, so it started in animals or it can be transmitted from animals to humans. Can, say, I transmit it to my pet dog? So it was initially transmitted from animals to humans, but it's no longer the issue. You know, in other words, right now the transmission is from humans to humans. And no, you cannot transmit it to your pet. So let's also talk about the idea that, um, you know, a lot of folks want to know, is there a vaccine coming? And a lot of the estimates are that it could be 18 to 24 months. What is that process like? Why does a vaccine take so long? Well, first of all, the vaccine has to be developed. We had a new virus. We didn't have a vaccine for it, right? So you have to develop a vaccine. Then once you have a vaccine, you need to get it into, into clinical trials, into testing. Right now, the vaccine, there's about 11 vaccines being developed, but one of them is the more advanced one. It's already started in clinical trials. The first phase of clinical trials is what we call safety. You want to be sure the vaccine is safe. And once it shows safe, then you move into the next stage where you show whether it's efficacious. And, and all, that, all that process takes time, and it takes a, a long time, and eventually, eventually you'll, have, you'll know whether the vaccine works or not. But that whole process is going to take anywhere between... 12 and 18 months. You had mentioned some of the, the symptoms that are associated with COVID-19. And of course, we're being told that there's a wide range that some people will never know they had it. And of course, for some people, it's fatal. Can you talk about that range of symptoms? Well, you know, some people have very mild symptoms. I don't think, I'm almost certain that there's nobody that has the infection and doesn't have symptoms. They may have little symptoms, but they have symptoms. Uh, so nobody's fully asymptomatic. 
But what happens, though, is that is that still symptoms are very nonspecific, you know, little fever, cough, um, uh, maybe some headache. An interesting symptom that we discovered recently as an important one, about 30% of people present with what we call anosmia, which is the inability to smell. So keep that in mind because, it's like, if you, I tell people, I wake in the morning and the first thing I do is, you know, I check my temperature, I, you know, make sure that I don't have a fever, I make sure that I'm okay, and then I go downstairs and I have my cup of coffee. And if I can smell that coffee, I'm good to go. You know, I, I say, well, I don't have coronavirus. That's my, that's what I tell people is my, uh, my rapid test for coronavirus is checking my temperature, making sure I feel fine, and checking that I, I can still smell. So it may be, you know, it's an interesting symptom that we're finding that's actually quite, quite significant. And is there any, any explanation for why that would be? Uh, we don't know yet. Some people think it's because probably the virus impacts, it affects the, the respiratory tract, the cells in the respiratory tract. Okay, so obviously before we ever get to symptoms, we would prefer just to prevent transmission in the first place. Obviously there's a lot of, of information out there about physical distancing and the things you can do to protect yourself. Um, why is that physical distance, that six-foot number that we're hearing, so important? Because this virus is transmitted by respiratory secretions. So in those respiratory secretions, like when I cough, when I sneeze, even when I talk, my, my spit, my saliva is traveling. And if you're close to me, you, you're going to get it on you, and that's how this virus is transmitted. It's a respiratory transmissible virus. The other thing that is important, though, is that this virus also, if I cough, I sneeze, or for example, if I, if I touch my face and I have the virus, and I touch my nose or my mouth, and then I touch, let's say, a doorknob, and then you come and you touch the doorknob, and then you touch your face, you can also get infected. So that's when the, high, high, the hygiene of the, cleaning the hands and not touching the face becomes really important. So the three key things are physical distancing, you know, um, washing your hands and not touching your face. And I've I've heard too that uh, that washing your hands with soap and water is more effective than hand sanitizers. Uh, why is that? They're they're both equally effective. The important is that we do it. Actually, what I tell people is soap and water is is just as effective. When people say I can't find hand sanitizer, I tell them that's fine. There's plenty of soap and water out there. And, and are, other than keeping themselves safe, you know, do, practicing physical distancing, hand washing, what are some things that folks can do to help folks like you, epidemiologists, people working on, on treatment, uh, to help further your cause? Well, you know, the most important thing is to, is, to, is to advocate for supporting research. I think it's really important for people to, to tell people in Congress, look, we've got to support research. Research, research is critical in getting us out of this mess. So I think supporting research is somebody, something that anybody can do. And right now when you're at home, you know, take a couple minutes and just call your congressman or women's office and just say, hey, I'm just calling because I'm really concerned about COVID and I want support for research in infectious disease because supporting research and developing treatments and vaccines for this disease is going to be critically important. The other thing that people can do, you know, I tell people I have a sign in my office that says, you know, I'm at work for you. You stay at home for me. Staying at home is actually important. I don't want to see people in the hospital. And, and one thing that people can do is actually prevent, you know, not become a patient because if you become a patient, then we've got a problem. So, so please, 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 please stay home. Don't become a patient. And I hope this isn't uh, too ignorant of a question, but if someone has gotten a positive test, is there any way they can volunteer to be part of the, the testing process or can they, you know, their, their plasma or serum be taken? That's a really good question. 
Uh, we don't know yet. We're pretty certain, but we don't quite know. But yes, if people, if, if very soon we're going to know if people that have been infected and have antibodies, we need to start measuring antibodies. Once we start measuring antibodies, people that have been infected, and if they have antibodies that protect them, those people then will, will be unable to transmit to others and, and get infected themselves, right? And those will be ideal people to have come and work and volunteer. So I'm looking forward to have those the results of those studies showing that if, if if having recovered gives you immunity. I think that's going to be really important. Well, Dr. Del Rio, I know you're a busy man today. Thank you so much for your time and for helping us to uh, to clarify some facts versus fiction about COVID-19. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Once again, that was Dr. Carlos Del Rio of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, also the Executive Associate Dean for Emory University School of Medicine at Grady. We will be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Sweet strawberry icing. You were strolling along in goodwill when just past that mid-century side table and denim jacket you spotted them, nestled in their display case. Miniature donut earrings. Oh, yes! Yes! Your favorite half-breakfast pastry, half-all-day dessert food made into your favorite form of ear candy. Oh, my. Those bejeweled sprinkles have satisfied some unknown hunger within you. Shh, do you smell that? That's the sugary scent of shopping success. For this is goodwill. And with every item you buy, you fund local job training and more. So go forth. Bring home those donut earrings. And bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. You can tune into Columbus Perspective each Sunday at 6 a.m. on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And each Sunday at 7 a.m. on WBNS FM Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Once again, I'm Daniel Barnett, and this has been Columbus Perspective.